Welcome to Shambhala Publications Audio. The following talk from the spring of 2019 in London, England on the Bardo Todral, or Tibetan Book of the Dead, is by Francesca Fremantle. Ms. Fremantle is intimate with this work, having worked closely with Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche on the translation of this text they did together. Additionally, she authored Luminous Emptiness, Understanding the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It's hard to imagine a more suitable guide for this work, and we hope you enjoy it. I feel really honored to be invited to talk here. Uh, can you all hear me? Mm, good. It was very strange when I heard a few days ago that Chögyal Namke Norbu had died. I didn't know him. I met him once long ago. But it really struck me as um, very significant and strange that I would be giving a talk um, in one of his centers, which I've never visited before, so soon after his passing. And it struck me that when a great teacher like that leaves their present incarnation, they are really set free from the limitations of the human incarnation that they had, and they become much more powerful. And although, obviously, his death affects the members of his Sangha more than anybody else, it also sends a kind of ripple into the universe. I can't really explain very much. It was just a, a very strong feeling that came to me when I heard this news. So I ask him to be present with us this evening and to inspire us to understand the wonderful teachings of the Bardo Todro. Um, I think all the great beings who take birth in order to benefit all of us and to teach the Dharma are one in their essence. Um, I'm sure there is no difference between his awakened mind and that of my own root guru, Chögyam Trungpa, who I also request to be present. Um, when Trungpa Rinpoche spoke about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, he said, well, it could equally be called the Tibetan Book of Life. Of course, that has nothing to do with its Tibetan title anyway. Um, but his favorite way of describing the Book of Space. Space is a fundamental concept, of course, in the whole of Buddhism, but it is particularly beautifully developed and expressed in Dzogchen. And it was a word that he used a lot and was really one of the things I think that he was trying to demonstrate in his life. Another thing about such great teachers, I'm sure this was true of Namke Norbu, Trungpa Rinpoche taught not so much through what he actually said, but through his presence and his actions and his being. And um, working on the translation with him was quite extraordinary. Um, we didn't really spend all that time on the mechanical process of translating. I would go through it all as best I could and present the translation and ask him anything that I had found difficult. And we would go over it. And then he would get completely 
inspired to talk about his own teachers and his own experiences with having worked with this particular teaching. And most of the time, I, I suppose I didn't really even understand what he was talking about. I'm sure you know in a situation with, with people like that, they really take your mind into another space, into the space of their own mind. And in that dimension of, of, of being, there really are no problems. You might go and see your guru with a question, and then just being in his or her presence will make that question completely irrelevant. And you're lifted into a place where everything is perfectly clear, but not in a way that you can put into thoughts or words. So when you come back down to ordinary life again, um, you really might not know what has happened at all. You just know that something very beautiful and significant has happened. And really, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings, particularly on this subject, because it was a text that was very, very special to him, uh, he would have that effect. So it's actually very difficult to, you know, people have asked me to write down um, my experiences with Trimba Rinpoche and what he actually taught and so on, but I found it quite impossible because it wasn't so much about words at all. And um, that may very well have been the same thing with Trugunamkinobu. I think it is particularly so with Dzogchen teachers somehow. They very easily go into that realm beyond words. Nevertheless, we have to try to use them. And um, uh, I think a warning at the very beginning that words are always lies, actually. Um, <laughs> it actually says that in the Gukha Samaja Tantra, which was another text that, that I had worked on, um, which is one of the earliest um, Buddhist tantras. And it says, um, you must lie because you have to try and talk about the Dharma. But in fact, anything you say is a lie because the Dharma cannot be expressed in words. That means we can't even really think about it, let alone get the words out. We can't really formulate it in concepts in our mind. We have to trust that there's something beyond that. And the more experience you have of practice, and particularly the more you, you practice formless meditations, Zogchen meditation, um, the more you learn to have confidence in this truth which you can't get your mind around and which you can't put into words. And of course, the Buddha himself was faced with this after his enlightenment. He wasn't going to teach at all. He, he, he had to be really persuaded. It said the representatives of gods and men came to him and begged him to teach. And he took quite a long time to be persuaded because he knew that he wouldn't be able to express the reality of what he had seen. He also knew that it would be completely misunderstood. This is inevitable. People don't misunderstand on purpose, but um, you just you never know how your words are going to be understood by anybody else. So somehow it's absolute, absolutely wonderful that the Dharma does 
come to us somehow or other through fallible human beings and totally unreliable. Space, said Trungpa Rinpoche, is the environment in which birth and death takes place. So space is the fundamental basis of everything. And like all the Buddhist concepts of this sort, space is not a theory or, a, um, or an image. It is a lived experience. It's a feeling. It's an actual um, experience of out there, even if we, it helps to get to get our mind into that um, into that sort of um, line of thought, so to speak, to think of infinite space. When we breathe out, our breath goes out. You can imagine going as far as you can possibly think out into the universe, out into limitless space. And yet the space that is meant in Dharma is far beyond that. It is the actual experience of complete openness, complete spaciousness, which is as much within us as it is all around us. It has no boundaries, it has no location, it has no dimensions. And we can definitely experience this in meditation. One of the um, main symbols of Dzogchen, in fact, is the sound of R and the Tibetan letter R, which I'm sure you all know. And we can say either out loud or, or to oneself, R, and completely relax. First of all, relax the body with that R, and then R let go of all the tension and all the clutter in our mind. Ah is the symbol of space. It's also the origin of everything. Everything arises from it. If everything were not space, nothing could appear, nothing could exist. Another lovely thing Trungpa Rinpoche said, everything exists only because it does not exist. It appears. The words for appearance and existence in this kind of, of literature is, are the same. And it appears out of spaciousness, nothingness. Spaciousness actually is also um, the word shunyata, emptiness. But emptiness seems very often a little bit negative. Spaciousness gives this idea of it could be full. It's full of all potentiality. Even potentiality is the wrong word. It simply contains absolutely everything. But this everything 
does not cause any obstruction. Another word for space is unobstructed. Transparent is another Dzogchen word. Um, everything can be seen through, and yet everything is as real and vivid as a very vivid rainbow. Nothing gets in the way of anything else. Everything can exist simultaneously. The whole of space exists in one bindu, one dot, which is not even a dot. It has no, no dimensions at all. The nearest we can think of it is the tiniest dot that you can imagine. And this contains the whole of existence, the whole of space. And it also contains the whole of time, past, present, and future, in one moment. And we can't call that moment the present because the present is something that... What is the present? Okay, it was there a second ago, now it's gone. You can never ever catch the present moment. So it's called nowness, which goes beyond past, present, and future. The ever-moving moment of the present, the past which we think has, has happened, the future which we imagine will happen, is all simultaneously in one nowness. And I'm sure you all know that it's, it's possible to experience this bindu of all space and all time. It's possible in meditation. It's equally possible just for it to occur spontaneously at any moment. And I think it's particularly made possible in the presence of great art. But that's not necessary. It can, it can just happen when you're walking down the street. Some people think they would need to go out into the countryside to experience this kind of thing. But no, it could happen in a crowded tube train. It can happen when you're cooking, doing the washing up, anything, whatever. But the more one practices meditation, the more opportunity there is for these spontaneous experiences to arise. So this space is called the ground of being. I'm talking about it as an experience that we all can have, and which is really the purpose of meditation. But you can see it also as the, the story of the whole universe. When we talk about how the universe came into being, how the six realms of beings developed, you know, why we're here at all as human beings on this earth. We're talking about the same thing as our own minds, our own day-to-day -day experience. There's a wonderful text um, called the uh, Pranidhana, which could be translated as the vow or the intention or the vision of Samantabhadra, which um, expresses this in a very poetic way. And it starts off saying, the ground of being is one, but it contains two paths leading to two results. 
awareness and unawareness, or knowing and unknowing. In Tibetan, Rigpa and Marigpa, in Sanskrit, Vidya and Avidya. So this ground of being is just the same thing as our own mind. It contains every possible possibility of existence within it. And it is always one. It goes on to say, within it there are not, even the names of samsara and nirvana do not exist. There is no distinction between samsara and nirvana, no distinction between confusion and awakening. There is simply this one ground of being, and from it everything arises as a display, like fireworks against a dark sky, or we could say like the northern lights against the sky. And this is simply things as they are, what is. And this is experienced because this state of of spaciousness and emptiness, which is the ground of being, is inseparable from what is sometimes called luminosity, sometimes called knowing. It's the quality of knowing. The quality of knowing goes together with the quality of the appearance of whatever can be known. So, in fact, it's the same as as the Heart Sutra, form is emptiness, and emptiness is also form. You cannot have emptiness that does not manifest as form. And you could not have any form if its essence were not emptiness. So... The emptiness here is this ground of being, the the space, the living space, the dynamic space, um, which is continually, spontaneously manifesting as all possible appearances, including us. The fact that there are appearances, or the display, I like the word display because we have this nice correspondence in English between play and display, which you don't have in the, in the traditional Buddhist languages. <coughs> so the display, or the play, means there is someone experiencing it. There is a subject, and as soon as anything appears, whatever, there is subject and object, but without ego, without any kind of um, possessiveness involved, without making a division into what is me and what is not me, what is inside, what is outside. It's a comp- it's, so they call it non-dual um, duality. Dualism, which is at the same time, is non-dual which is very hard for us to get our minds around. But yet we do have these experiences as well in everyday life. And again, it can happen just suddenly. Um, You suddenly look at something, look at a blue sky, 
and you're absolutely one with it. You listen to a piece of music and you're completely one with it. Everyone has had these experiences. It can happen with someone you love very much. You suddenly become completely at one with that person. And it is beyond thought. And we all recognize at those moments that it's beyond our normal everyday experience. And in fact, we couldn't live in that experience continuously. It would be impossible to go about one's daily life, um, you know, going to work, doing everything around the house, eating, cooking, catching the tube and so on. We have to live as normal um, dualistic beings most of the time. And at the same time, we can recognize that this non-dual experience, this experience of total oneness with the universe around us, with other people, with everything that exists, is part of our nature and never goes away. So we are living on many different levels at the same time. And I think one of the great benefits of meditation is to help us keep in touch with that non-dual aspect of our being, which is the awakened aspect. So the the, uh, vision of Samantabhadra text goes on to say that what it means to be a Buddha, to be Samantabhadra, is never to move from the awareness of that ground of being. Whereas sentient beings have somehow moved away from that awareness and have entered an illusion or a dream or a play of being in one of the six realms, in our case as human beings, and have sort of gradually become totally convinced that that is what they are, what we are, and so have lost touch with the ground of being, which is always our basic nature and which we never fully move away from. In fact, what is unique about Dzogchen is that it really emphasizes this basic Buddha nature, which we are and which we never leave. Um, Whereas, um, although that's certainly always present in all the traditions of Buddhism, because there are many more, uh, there are so many methods of sort of trying to get back to it, So we think we're not there. We have to make a journey. We have to do something. We have to change ourselves. Dzogchen says, no, you are it already. You don't have to go anywhere. It even says you don't have to do anything. But, of course, we have to know how to to interpret those words. As Trungpa put it, what we are doing, in fact, is always adding to confusion. When we say we do something, it's always adding to our confusion, taking us away from our Buddha nature, hiding our Buddha nature from us. To get back to our Buddha nature is really to do nothing. But we don't know how to do nothing. So to get back to this text of the Bardo Todoro, which is sort of what I was supposed to be talking about. 
<laughs> this is all, all relevant to it. Why we find ourselves in this situation. <clears throat> Again, this Mantavadra text describes one version of how it happened. How um, it's as though there's this one awareness, knowingness, which is the, the way the Buddha nature knows and experiences everything that arises. It's as though some little section of that suddenly became aware of all this vast display happening all around it and it became frightened and it became aware of itself as something separate. And from that fundamental fear, the long journey towards the development of all the glaciers, greed, hatred, desire, and so on, um, developed. And this developed into taking form in one of the six realms. Whereas the fundamental Buddha awareness simply experiences everything that happens and immediately lets it go. That's the trick, is to experience and immediately let go. And the display is continuous all the time. So it's a continuous motion of experiencing and letting go. And in fact, William Blake, and he talked about, there's a lovely verse, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses a joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So what we do when we, when we perceive something we like, any sort of joy, we want to grasp it and cling onto it and keep it and not let it go. That's the very way to destroy it. Kiss a joy as it flies, it sounds as though you're, you're not going to enjoy it, it's gone. But that's not the case, in fact, because that joy is continually arising. Eternity's sunrise, it never ends. The, the sun of that bliss and that joy is just continually arising with no end. But as soon as we try to grasp onto it, as soon as we let it go, then we are renewed again and again and again. So that's exactly the same idea. And the, this, this fundamental twist in a tiny little bit of, of the universal awareness is this urge to grasp on, to grasp onto our experience, to grasp onto a feeling of, I am experiencing that. I am different from that. And then it develops into, I like this experience, so I want more of it. I don't like that, so I want to destroy it or push it away. And so the whole thing gets bigger and bigger. And so we end up finding ourselves in the position we are in now. And that is what is meant by birth. So birth, death, and bardo, which is, could be called the state in between the two. Bardo is just a gap. It's a, 
it's a, a bridge or a, a link between any two states. Birth, bardo, death, bardo, rebirth are continually happen happening within our stream of awareness the whole time. Um, this whole uh, kind of picture that I was describing of the ground of being and the luminosity, the, the display within it, this isn't happening outside somewhere. It isn't something that happened long ago. It's something that is happening actually within our minds right now. Or we could say within mind itself right now. What does it mean if I say my mind? We all think we have our own individual mind. In meditation, you begin to see, first you begin to think, well, where is mind? Is it, is it sort of something inside my brain? Is it throughout my body? And you begin to feel, well, it's outside of me as well. Um, you breathe out and you feel your whole awareness going out into space all around you. There's no end to it. And slowly you begin to get a feeling of mind itself, which is not necessarily my mind. And another thing that is happening to us continuously, as well as the... So the, the, this birth of individual mind, of sentient being in, in one of the six realms, is actually taking place continuously. At the same time, everything is dissolving. The, one, the wonderful display all around us is instantaneously arising and dissolving all the time. And our own sense of awareness is dissolving all the time. We have this sort of very... Um, well, for one thing, we're in a material body which kind of dulls things down enormously and limits our perceptions. Another thing that Blake understood very well, that our, our actual senses, our five senses, are more limitations than they are means of communicating with the world. And he believed that one could go beyond this. And, of course, Buddhism says just the same thing. So there's also, at the same time, a sense of dissolution happening within us. And this, it's in certain circumstances, becomes... Um, much more visible to us and if we if we receive a shock of some kind some bad news if we if we feel ill and we're suddenly really worried what could it be all kinds of things that can happen um, we can really be aware of this sense of impending dissolving of everything that we know, that, that actually our life is not firm and secure as we normally happily go along thinking it is. But anything could happen at any moment. Um, we might not be, 
We might go mad at any moment. We might lose our mind. We might lose our physical faculties. We might actually die. All sorts of strange things might happen to us. Waking up from a dream sometimes you can feel like there's a sense of complete disorientation, perhaps not knowing where you are. Sometimes it can be really frightening, just for a moment, and then suddenly the ordinary world reasserts itself. And Trungpa uh, Rinpoche described this very beautifully. I just want to read a very small passage from um, his commentary to the Bardo Tedro, which actually was taken from his is the transcription of a seminar that he gave on it. Um, and he says something very interesting here about th this experience of duality. Remember that the, the experience which led to our birth as a human being is really the, the development of, of duality, of not being one with the fundamental ground of being and display. So. He's talking about how the experience of um, coming near to death is actually one that's happening to us the whole time. Uh, the experience of uncertainty about whether one is actually going to die in the sense of losing contact with the solid world. This uncertainty is not necessarily seen in terms of leaving the body, but in terms of losing one's ground the possibility of stepping out from the real world, that is the so-called real world that we're used to, into an unreal world. We could say that the real world is that in which we experience pleasure and pain, good and bad. There is some act of intelligence which provides the criteria of things that they are, as they are, the basic dualistic notion. That was another thing he was always emphasizing how really intelligent ego is, how much effort and intelligence we put into this continual action of, of, um, of keeping going our sense of separateness. Whereas ego to relax is the most natural thing, but to us it's a huge effort to relax into meditation, to relax into non-duality. So our intelligence is really working over time to keep us um, thinking we are individual sentient beings. Then he says something very interesting. If we are completely in touch with these, with these dualistic feelings, that absolute experience of duality is itself the experience of non-duality. Then there is no problem at all because duality is seen from a perfectly open and clear point of view in which there is no conflict. There is a tremendous encompassing vision of oneness. Conflict arises because duality is not seen as it is. It is only seen in a biased way, a very clumsy way. So he's talking about this situation we are in where we've lost touch with the non-dualistic aspect of things. So very clumsily, we only believe in this and that, I and not I, subject and object, in a very crude and clumsy way, as he puts it. Whereas 
if we can relax into a recognition of the basic ground of oneness, duality can exist within that without any problem. And it has to, otherwise we couldn't go on living. And even for the Buddhas, there is a sense of self and other, but without ego, without the clumsy, crude version of duality. <coughs> so that the display, the continuous display of life, existence itself, can be seen in a way that is not confused, in a way that is awakened. This is the way the Buddhas experience everything. Then he describes what, um, as the text says, happens after death, but which also happens to us all the time. Um, so when we talk about the dualistic word, world as confusion, that confusion is not the complete dualistic world, but only half-hearted. And this causes tremendous dissatisfaction and uncertainty. It builds up to the point of fear of becoming insane, the point where one might leave the world of duality and go into a sort of woolly, fuzzy emptiness, which is the world of the dead, the graveyard that exists in the midst of fog. So that's his lovely description of the the state that we get in after death, but which is also the description of that we are in quite a lot of the time in our daily lives, sort of uncertain, confused state in which there is a lot of fear and we have forgotten our connection with our true nature. So the two big themes in the book describe these two contrasting ways of being, that the dualistic way, which is the six realms of existence, which we are uh, experiencing all the time, circling through them, and on the other hand, the awakened possibility of being, which is the realm of the five Buddhas. The five Tathagatas. And why five of them? And what does it mean to talk about the five Tathagatas? It is beyond concepts, as we know. We really can't um, we can't get our minds, our ordinary dualistic minds, around this, uh, this picture of vast open awakenedness, which contains all qualities. Um, and which is one. So simply in order to be able to think about it or talk about it or have any idea of it at all, we have to split things up. Rather like looking at a rainbow, a rainbow. but in order to see it at all, 
we have to see it, we have to filter that light through a prism which gives us the separate colors of the rainbow. But they, they are not, they are not sort of ultimately real, the colors of the rainbow. They are all, they are simply different aspects of pure light. And they never move from that, from that sort of basis of their being. So in order to understand what the awakened nature could possibly be, we focus on qualities that we can be aware of, such as wisdom, compassion, um, power, effective action, and so on. And so the texts have developed the idea of one all-knowing Buddha awareness split into five different qualities of awareness which we can look at and think about and identify in ourselves and other people. That's the most important thing because these Buddhas are not beings out there who are superior to us. They are our own qualities. Our own innate Buddha nature is in no way separate from the, the image of Samantabhadra, whose name means all good, complete goodness, which, who represents the complete Buddha nature. Samantabhadra is not like a god in charge of everything. Samantabhadra is simply a, a name that we give to everything that we could possibly imagine as ultimately good. And Samantabhadra manifests all around us and in our own lives continuously. So why five? Well, this is because, and as Jung found out, the mandala is a, is a kind of archetypal image that arises from the human mind. It's a sort of basic way of imagining um, any, any, any shape in space, a circle which has a center. So you have one in the center, and to define the circle, you need at least four directions, north, south, east, and west. So this is the sort of basic number that you need to be able to, to form a picture in our minds, to make an image that we can then relate to in some way. So that's why we have the five Buddha principles. And what they are really is five different ways of experiencing whatever there is to be experienced, the display which arises from the primordial ground. The sort of most fundamental way is called the Dharmadhatu um, jnana or wisdom or knowledge. But it actually, it's not, it's not knowledge of something, it's a way of experiencing. It's a knowledge which is experience at the same time. And this, this way of knowing experiences the display as a whole, as a oneness, um, containing absolutely everything, recognizing its oneness at the same time, recognizing its emptiness, at the same time recognizing its miraculous display. So it's a kind of fundamental um, picture of how the Buddhas experience things, or, or how, the, how the Buddha nature itself, how awakened nature experiences.
And the next one is, and, th and this is then, I don't know how this happened, gradually over centuries of experience of meditation, um, a kind of consensus image was formed and it, it sort of coalesced into the figure of the Buddha Virochana. And then the next one, um, the Buddha Akshopya, experiences all this display as taking place within a mirror. So it's absolutely real, but at the same time, the awareness knows that it's not real in itself, so to speak. It's not solid. It's not. Um, it is impermanent. It's always changing. It has an illusory quality to it, as well as its real quality. In fact, it's because of its illusory quality that it is actually real. If there was what we think of normally as reality, if there was actually solid matter in any form at all, it actually would not be possible because the whole universe would be immediately clogged up with stuff. Um, I mean, we know this now from science. To me, it's absolutely wonderful that, that every aspect of science absolutely confirms really the insights that Buddhism had. Um, and we know that our bodies are not solid. The floor is not solid. These walls are not solid. Everything is simply a dance of energy in space. And the fundamental particles from which matter appears to be built up are even beyond description. And I think, I don't know how far physics has got yet, but there always seems to be something, something that's a little bit beyond comprehension and beyond measurement. And yet, of course, this doesn't make the slightest difference to our everyday experience. And even a, um, a physicist who is working with these concepts every day, it doesn't make any difference to their everyday experience, which is a little bit strange, really. But <laughs> there it is. And even as meditators, um, I think meditation has more chance of it making a difference to our experience. I hope so. But anyway, um, everything is simply a dance of energy in space. Uh, what was I just saying before that? Um, sorry? Oh, Akshopya, yes. Oh, yes, this relates to the mirror-like knowledge. Seeing everything is in a mirror. Everything is fluid. It's a, uh, it's a very graphic... Um, picture of the basic teaching of impermanence, really. Continual change. Nothing is what we think it is. Then the next one, Amita, um, the next one is uh, Ratnasambhava, is called the wisdom of equality, the knowing of equalness or equality, which is the kind of knowing that sees, um, that sees the equality of everything, the same quality in everything, and that is the Buddha nature itself. Every single manifestation 
of human beings, beings in the other six realms, inanimate objects, whatever they may be, is a display of the fundamental Buddha nature. And it shares this same quality. It's also called the same taste, the one taste of everything. It's the taste of enlightenment, the taste of Buddha nature. So in that sense, you know, everybody, even the worst human being you could think of, who's done the most terrible crimes, has no less Buddha nature. And we have a duty as Buddhists, I think, to recognize this and to always try and see whatever manifestation of good there is in even the most evil person, which is not at all politically correct, but <laughs> we should do it. And in a sense, uh, is no different from the greatest bodhisattva. And then, sort of to balance that, there is the knowledge of Amitabha, which is a word that's hard to translate. It has a lot of meanings which can't possibly be conveyed either in one English word or one Tibetan word as well. But within that knowledge of, of sameness and equality, it recognizes the individual differences of every single person, living being, object. It's what makes it possible for us to distinguish anything at all from anything else. Otherwise, we, it would be a total blur. So these two sort of exist together, and they may seem completely contradictory, but they have to go together. All the five wisdoms have to go together to make the whole um, uh, Buddha awareness. And the, the, the Sanskrit word pratyavekshana, which is, is the word for this, for this, uh, this knowledge or wisdom, it has a lot of very beautiful implications which are not often brought out. Um, when you look at the image of Amitabha, he is always in meditation and he's slightly looking down. His eyes are not closed, but looking down. He's in real, sort of real deep com contemplation, as though he's gazing at something, which is perhaps gazing back at him. The, the word, the the element of this word prati means a back and forth notion. Motion is a reciprocal kind of gazing into the heart of all beings, each separate individual being simultaneously, and they are also gazing back at him. Um, yes, this sense of, of mutual, mutual experiencing. Um, this came up in a, in a talk that I gave at the Buddhist Society not long ago. Um, I can't remember if it was, it was a poem by Rilke. Does anybody remember it? Um, I think he was, maybe he was talking about looking at the stars or something, or was it about music? But it certainly came up in connection with music and poetry. The sense of anything, no, it was, it was something about music. 
you listen to the music, music and it's as though the music is hearing you. 